Good day, horror hounds, and welcome to another exciting episode of the spine chilling, the tingling, the thrilling cadaver dogs. I'm Rob Basercha. I'm Devin Shepard. <laughs> I'm David. Me, Jacob. And David's dying. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, this is going to happen a lot today, guys. <laughs> Yeah. By the way, I did mention it. We are the cadaver dogs. We are the horror hounds. We are the flesh mongers. We are the uh, flesh eating slayers of your boredom. We come here to tell you about all the crazy horror movies. And today we are talking about horror legends. I couldn't be more excited for the wire work in this episode. It is so fucking cool. And these movies have no um, business being as scary as they are. I have to admit, guys, I have had so many nightmares lately from watching horror movies, and it's been decades since this has happened. I'm wow. so tired. <laughs> What's wrong with me? I got to tell you, this first movie, the audience isn't going to believe us. I watched it, I think I've seen it three or four times now, and it's been probably 10, 15 years since the last one, but I remember being 15 or 16 years old with all my high school friends and we're just like high as af in a, in his house watching this movie and one of my friends screamed out loud screamed out loud during the first film during the first film oh my gosh well that's what you have to do that that's what you're <laughs> supposed to do they literally tell you hey just just scream okay yeah, like it was a general surprised yell scream. It was real. It was awesome. Oh to, to paint the picture, he's six foot five, so he's just this gigantic guy. <laughs> so what what is this this movie that your friend was so terrified of? Well, it's not my job to tell you about that. It's Devin Shepherd's. But before we get into the nitty gritty of this fantastic episode, I got to take a page from the director of our first film and tell you if you don't tweet about us, talk about us, or go home and explain to your grandmother why Cadaver Dogs is the coolest fucking podcast on the airwaves, then you might be getting murdered. By a cadaver dog. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I guess in order to avoid a lawsuit right now, I'm just going to start us off into the first film. <laughs> Our first film is William Castle's second Vincent Price feature, The Tingler. Dr. Warren Chapin has devoted his life to the science of fear. With the help of his assistant, he has concocted a theory that a sort of parasite is attached to our spine, and it grows with fear and threatens the life of the host. But there is one way to survive this parasite's deadly grip, and that is to scream. They rightfully call this parasite the Tingler. <laughs> but how can they prove this to be true? And what happens when you don't scream? What happens to the Tingler? Lucky <laughs> <laughs> for them, the local silent theater is run by a man and his deaf-mute wife who cannot scream. They devise a plan. One night, the doctor visits the woman, already a nervous wreck, and prescribes her with a drug. What begins next is a questionable hallucinogen drug trip that frightens her to death. When the doctor performs an autopsy, he finds the tingler alive in her spine. <laughs> the tingler then becomes unleashed. The doctor must find this creature before it kills again. This is William Castle's The Tingler. The Tingler. The Tingler. How, how much can we make David laugh every time I, I, I don't know. That? It's, it's, it's <laughs> awesome. The Tingler. There's also a bunch of LSD scenes, which are awesome. There's this part where the uh, the woman who's deaf mute, 
you think she's on LSD, but she's not. She's not on LSD. Right? That whole scene like had me fucked up. I was like, wait, what is actually happening? And it took me a while to figure out the actual plot line. Like I I was did get not tricked. on LSD? I thought no. she was. No. I was so con okay. She was on Barbituas, but then her husband was putting together this like haunted house display to try yeah. to kill her. Yeah. Yeah, honestly, the twists and turns in this movie were like so well done. Like you think it's the doctor's evil and then he's not, and then you think the wife is evil and she's not, or everyone's evil and Wait, he did the, the, the wife's the pretty LSD, evil. though? No. No, it no. was the husband. The husband murdered her. I thought it was I thought they both did it. No, no, he wasn't in it. That's why he wants to call the cops on him at the end. Okay, that makes a lot more sense now. Yeah, it's like a bait and switch. Like, you're supposed to think Vincent Price is evil, even though what he does to his wife is pretty fucked up. But uh, it is. he's really not. <laughs> he's, like, not an evil guy. She's also evil. She actually tries to kill him. Yeah. She unleashes the tingler. That scene where the deaf mute girl is, like, getting freaked out made my friend scream. <laughs> that, like like when the uh, zombie thing comes out of the bed and sits up like that's a pretty good jump scare and the whole scene is just creepy and weird but it's so corny and campy at the same time i just love it i just laughed all the time and i'm a little on edge it's one of my favorite horror movie scenes i think the best is when you get into the bathroom and they they actually just went color yeah, oh, yeah. They just have red blood that is so cool movie. I just was not expecting it at all. I, I audibly said, whoa. I think this is what gave Steven Spielberg the idea for Schindler's List. <laughs> <laughs> he's, just, he's just trying to recapture the the mastery of William Castle's The Tingler. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Could be. So uh, a little bit of backstory about William Castle, the director of this movie. He was known for these extreme gimmicks of like Emergio and like Percepto and all these things. And in the movie theater, when they showed the Tingler, they would wire certain seats to actually kind of buzz on you. Which is really so frightening. Yeah. Can you imagine the whole entire time you're told, hey, every human being has this Tingler inside of you that you cannot see and you do not know about and it can kill you when you get scared yeah so let's scare the shit out of you and then like make you feel like the tingler is literally in the theater obviously in the movie they have so many scenes that take place in a movie theater yeah, yeah. <laughs> the the climax of the film i mean there's a part during the climax where it literally just goes black and they just start screaming the tingler is in the theater and that's when <laughs> the the seats would go off and that's when yeah, everyone yeah. would buzz yeah. it's so crazy i would love to experience that god if, <laughs> if i took my wife to that because she screams more than anybody if her <laughs> seat started going off so then she's fine oh she would be <laughs> yeah, flipping right. out Flipping out. Yeah, she's never going to get tangled. Oh, dude, there was a spider in the car the other day when I was on a turn bike. I almost crashed. She just started screaming so loud. I was like, oh, I was like, thank you, stop. I was like, ah, it's a spider. And I'm like, did kill it. She's like, I can't. And I'm like, would you want me to do it? I'm going 90. Like, stop screaming. One of the other things William Castle did was uh, like Emergio, which was in Hoss and Hounded Hill. And I guess like there was a ghost on a wire that would like swing through the audience. And, yeah. um, like in the, like us, uh, we'll murder you if you don't tweet us. He threatened to do the same thing in Homicidal. That if you told anyone the ending of the movie, then he, they should kill you or he'll kill you. 
and there was also a coward's corner so like it if you got too scared at the movie and you had to leave you could give your voucher back and go to the coward's corner and get your money a refund <laughs> but you had to get you got like a pin that said like coward's corner or something which is just so funny i love what he, and for macabre i love what he did for that one which was more tame i think it was his first one um yeah. he had ambulances show up outside of the movie theater he would have nurses like hang out in the theater to make it seem like if you go see this movie you might die of fright hmm i wonder where this idea for the tingler came from (laughs) he would hand out insurance certificates (laughs) insuring people a thousand dollars if they died of fright in the theater Uh, yeah it's so funny fantastic Fantastic. he's basically like the b-movie king and the way he got his start, if it's to be believed, is that he was going to Broadway shows of Dracula starring Bela Lugosi. And he'd gone so many times, he eventually met Bela Lugosi when he was a little kid. And Bela Lugosi took him on as an assistant on the production. And that's how he got his foot in the door. Oh, wow. And that's that's just like the coolest, uh, you know, like, like, oh, who's your rabbi? Well, my rabbi's Dracula. <laughs> You're like, oh, shit. <laughs> And now you make The Tingler, which, again, one of the scariest bug and spine movies I've ever seen. The whole concept is extremely terrifying. It's the whole idea that, I mean, like I said earlier, we all have this inside of us and we can release it at any point. It, It's not, yeah, it's not an external fear. It's, it's a fear of ourselves in almost a way. Mm-hmm. I feel like it's almost like Lovecraftian, you know? in uh yeah from beyond when you have to be worried about like growing your pituitary gland or something and this one you just have to be worried about being too scared or this thing will yeah phase into existence and it's indestructible it also moves slow as shit and you can just put it in a box but and all you have to do is yell at it to get it to chill i don't know why he thinks it's so dangerous i agree with the lovecraftian angle because i mean it's like it's actually not very likely to kill you i mean they're they're like trying to learn more about it and they have a really hard time getting a tingler that is effective at all but it's just the fear that you don't know your own body like it's it's even kind of body horror to a certain extent that there is something inside of you that you do not even know is there and it is malicious and it's also just a giant fucking bug. There's also a conversation that uh, he has with his assistant or something about how, how when you die, you know, you're, you're not really dead. There's all these other organisms that keep going on um, after you die, which is kind of a neat idea. I mean, just to have it explained in that way, especially since the ending of this movie is is that typical 1950s. Oh, scientists shouldn't meddle, blah, 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 you know. Oh, the fear of the unknown. What, what if we lose our humanity to uh, a bug? <laughs> Science bug, yeah. Which, I mean, if this thing were real, then I feel like I would want to know something about it and to have it be like, hey, what what is this thing? Can you guys, like, just figure out what it is, please? Mm. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, they, yeah, they don't really give an answer. There's so much in this movie that makes actually no sense so ali runs a silent movie theater with his mute deaf wife but so his wife dies right and he brings her to vincent price and vincent price cuts her back open to pull this bug out and then ali's just like fine i'll just take her back to my house then call the cops and explain to them what happened 
So the cops are just going to show up and be like, why is your wife's back split open? And he's just like, I don't know. <laughs> and he thinks it's going to be fine. It's like, wait a minute. I think you should leave her there and call. It doesn't make sense. And then Vincent Price just like puts it back at the end. Just inside the open wound of her back, I guess. The putting it back was really weird. I, I mean, I get it. It's such a silly idea. And like, you know, the movie is silly enough to where I'm like, okay, fine. At that rate. Yeah, I mean, I guess how else are you going to defeat it other than just putting it back? I mean, I think the thing that really doesn't make sense is that it... If this thing were real, we would actually know about it. I mean, there, there, there is, this is not the first mute person to ever exist in, in history. Yeah, well, I mean, I guess my question <laughs> is the movie kind of suggests that dying from fright means that your back breaks. So... Does your back does it break your back? How does it actually kill you? That's what I'm wondering. Yeah, it 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 breaks your spine. It cracks your spine. Does it? Or it does something to your brainstem. Maybe I'm not sure if it technically breaks your spine. I think it it just it latches on it grabs and tightens around you because when um when the doctor's wife tries to murder him, the tingler comes up to his throat and wraps himself wraps itself around his throat and strangles him. And we see it constantly doing that when it crawls up the doctor's arm. Um, so I think it, it is just like a tight grip. Yeah, it doesn't literally uh, break your spine and chew. It like basically crushes it. It cracks it. Yeah, but what I'm wondering, does that mean that any in this world, everyone who's died of fright has a cracked spine? Yes. Okay. But so yeah, they, they would find it then. So then technically they don't die of fright, I guess? Well, fright is the tingler, so yeah. Right, but the tingler cracks the bra the back, and that's what kills them. That's what dying of fright means. It's yeah. cracking the back. Um, but I wanted to go back to what David was saying. I don't believe that we would know that this thing exists, and I don't know if in 1959 people would know that this thing exists. I think that there's still so much that we are discovering about ourselves and our body, and especially back then, what scientists were discovering. I mean. It, it, it really is interesting to to see how advanced we've gotten with biology and anatomy and like to think about, yeah, 50 years ago, you know, some people might not have known about, I don't know, fucking, I think we had less bones at that point. Like, I don't think they discovered all the bones then. I don't know. I don't, I'm not a scientist, but things have changed. Well, I think we've even discovered like new organs since then. There's like yeah. organs in your skin that like die quickly after you die and they're hard to find or something uh, and there's like a giant there's blood or in your skin there's like a giant organ throughout your body that does something that they've only discovered like five years ago wait what yeah yeah i i read an article about it in like scientific america or something once so i don't know anything more than that but i remember like you well, organ now I'm found curious. What? Is it a centipede? Yeah. Uh, what? No, no, no. I, I think it's more like a more like a slime mold. <laughs> it's like in a, is it Creep Show? I don't like. You know, this. Creep Show where the where the moss was taking over everything and uh, Stephen King was getting covered in moss. Yeah. Yeah, it's like that. Just inside of our bodies. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Creep Show's awesome. So, while we're talking about him taking the tingler out of the deaf woman's spine. Um, yes, he's a coroner. But like you were saying, Rob, um, 
he doesn't go to any authorities when this woman dies. No, no, no police ever show up any at any point in this movie. Um, I don't even know if he records her death. He just like starts operating on her, and I mean, half of the film you think that he killed her, right? You think that he was the one like creating this fear and seeing whether or not she would die or what happens when she doesn't scream. I literally thought he killed her until you guys told me that he didn't so yeah, yeah. yeah. i mean i thought he killed her until the movie told us that yeah like i i totally believed it the entire time mm-hmm. until they revealed the twist which i thought was done well obviously since david didn't even catch it so yeah perfect uh, I, I no I, I i think it wasn't done well because i didn't catch it. no i i, <laughs> because I, I just misunderstood it. I, I caught it too but um i i'd remembered it wrong because i thought mm. he killed her but then when uh I mean, I, they definitely show you, like, because Ollie is getting all the Halloween stuff together. And you're like, wait a minute, what? And then he tells Vincent Price that he got the idea from him to kill her. From the Tingler. Yeah, and Vincent so, yeah. Price says, you killed your wife. And Ollie yeah. says, yes. <laughs> because and I was thinking, oh, yeah, but that would only happen because uh, Vincent Price uh, drugged her first, but anyway. Yeah, the drug the drug part was questionable. Anyway... Go on with your point, Devin. <laughs> my, my point was, um, I think I think I was questioning a lot through this movie of, like, the methods of a scientist and whether or not they're right or whether or not they're, they're not. Um, moral. <laughs> mm-hmm. And at that time, maybe some people were thinking that scientists did some immoral things. Hmm. No, that's a good point. Um, I think that a lot of it is honestly just that... uh, Did William Kessel write the script? I don't think so. Well, I think that whoever wrote the script just, like, either didn't do research on scientific method or just didn't care about scientific method. Like, it's clearly not a priority of this movie to do science correctly. Uh, Right. (laughs) that they're they're not doing science correctly there's he also like has a lot of massive leaps in his conclusions he's just like huh (laughs) there are some cracks in the bones oh what if there's some interdimensional entity that lives on our spine that kills us when we're afraid but then he's right what wow where did you get that from dude (laughs) yeah before he even does anything and yeah and you're right david because then the first thing he does do is test himself And that's, like, the worst thing you could do. He's sitting there talking to his recorder, like, I feel this way and this way. I'm like, you're not a trustworthy (laughs) subject right now, my dude. You're literally hallucinating. It's very entertaining, but it is not accurate science in any way whatsoever. And no one watching this movie thinks of this. (laughs) Well, well, yeah, yeah. But it's, you know, it's a very short movie, and it, it gets the idea across, I think. But it definitely asks those questions of, like, what is ethical science and, um, like to what extent do we go too far to learn these truths that maybe maybe we're not ready to learn them maybe the method through which we're trying to reach them is wrong because like he's we're led to think he's going to kill the deaf woman because he's thinking about it and he talks about it like but he couldn't possibly do it because ethically wrong I think that in an alternate version we would have compared this to reanimator in that both of them it's the scientists who the thing he is studying is very strange and difficult to study that he can't use conventional methods. And that's kind of their excuse for ignoring scientific method and whatnot. Mm. Uh, but then he stoops to increasingly 
dangerous and ethically questionable means of obtaining his research, which he thinks is going to better humanity at some point. Mm. And, and a lot of it's kind of like circumstantial, you know, he like takes advantage and like uh, opportunistic is the word I wanted to use because he's planning on yeah. using a cat, you know, which ethically is ethically valid in science. Um, whether or not you agree with that, it's what scientists often do. He like used the opportunity to get one over on his wife to scare her and um, do the x-ray of yeah. her spine. But and then I mean, you know, him testing on himself, if you have to use a human subject, that's probably the most ethical way of doing it to do it on yourself, although you become an unreliable narrator. Yeah. Getting David out of the, for the house for today was not the right way to do that. He would have needed David to beat her as a neutral observer and just as a safety measure of someone who can, like, I mean, you just have a doctor nearby. Like You literally have an assistant that is there all the time. Yeah, why can't he <laughs> make those notes for you? Again, because yeah. his assistant would argue with him that it's unethical, so he wouldn't let him do it. It's dangerous and unethical, so he knew that it's, or, or he... He probably thought his assistant wouldn't let him do it. But but from what his assistant is saying, it seems like he's pretty hardcore. He's like, we can't stop him. We'll ruin the, the uh, experiment. And then he wants to stop him to get in the room. Maybe the last thing before we move on, my favorite line in the movie is uh, when when his, his wife comes up to him and she's uh, trying to trick him so she's being all seductive and whatnot. And she goes, uh, let's celebrate finding the tingler. And I just started laughing hysterically. Oh and like, I waited 29 years for a woman to say that to me. Oh, my God, David. Oh, my God. Uh-huh. Yeah. Great line. My favorite is when uh, William Castle is doing his bit in the beginning. And he's talking about screaming. And he says, don't be embarrassed to open your mouth and let it rip with all you've got. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> like, I... Did, did they, like, understand how this was going to be interpreted? Is this only because of our modern lens? Uh, were, were these innuendos, did they exist back no. then? No. No? I don't know. I, I, I actually don't even understand that innuendo. Open your mouth and let it rip. I don't Well, letting it rip isn't usually the thing you do when you're opening your mouth. Yeah, yeah. That, that, <laughs> that means something else now. That's our, our previous episode when we did uh, Teeth. Yeah, that's yeah, that's good. <laughs> anyway, on that note, thank you, David. Uh, let's take a break right here to hear a word from our sponsor. Okay, pups, I'm excited to move on to our next movie, but first, I'd like to ask you once again to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Cadaver Dogs Pod. And while you're at it, if you're enjoying the show, the best way to help us grow is by tweeting about us or otherwise sharing us with your friends. Lastly, if you have a podcast or horror-related product you'd like to promote in this space right here, shoot us an email at cadaverdogspodcast at gmail.com. Thanks, pups. Thanks for sticking with us, horror hounds. And speaking of wire work, this next film might have some of the best special effects I've ever seen on cinema, and they still hold up today even more than... Oh, God. I'm, gonna, I'm like 70 years later. It's like 90 years later. It's Holy been almost crap. 90 90 years since this movie came out. That blows my mind. 90 years. In 10 years it's going to be 100 years. This movie's almost 100 years old. The year is 1933. 
a mysterious man rushes to the hospital. He goes to the nurse and says, Help me, help me, I need a doctor, for I've turned invisible. And the nurse replies, I'm sorry, but the doctor won't be able to see you right now. Wow, David. <laughs> wow. <laughs> wow. That was awesome. My cousin told me that yesterday. <laughs> and he, he, said, he, he said that I could use it. <laughs> uh, okay. The year is 1933. In the blinding frost of a snowstorm emerges a mysterious man wrapped in bandages. The innkeepers reluctantly accept the strange visitor as a tenant to the dismay and gossip of their patrons. Rumored to be a disfigured scientist, the man only wants to be left alone. And when pressed for tedious trivials like rent, he attacks the innkeepers. As the police storm in demanding answers, he unravels his bandages, revealing what lies beneath. Nothing. This man is Jack Griffin, a scientist who has uncovered the secret of invisibility. Just the right mixture of chemicals, it turns out. But unfortunately, those same chemicals have driven him mad. Now the vengeful specter ponders why anything should stop him from his destiny to rule. And he wages war against society, toppling trains, killing police, and robbing banks, all the while keeping a previous partner prisoner to do his bidding. Is there any way to stop this mastermind of havoc? This invisible man, starring Claude Rains and directed by James Whale. Mm. He really is an evil bastard in this movie, isn't he? Yeah, yeah. For half of the movie, my notes were, are we supposed to sympathize with him? Am I supposed to, like, root for him? Like, what am I supposed to be feeling about this guy? He's extremely an <laughs> asshole. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. he also has the greatest laugh in cinema history. Oh, my God, that voice is fantastic. Well, Mark Hamill's Joker. No, not even <laughs> close. Not even, like, you can't, it's apples and oranges, but still, like, this is... Apples and oranges. Uh, I don't like pears, by the way. <laughs> I, I totally lost my train of thought there. Um, <clears throat> yeah, yeah. It kind of seems like so much of this movie is good. And then it just gets raised to the next level based on Claude Rain's voice and his laugh. He has this maniacal laugh that is so funny and over the top. It's really what it is, yeah. I love the script. I think that the lines are actually, like, incredible, and there are some really fantastic uh, speeches and <laughs> monologues, and then Claude Rain's delivery of them is just so beautiful. Like, I watch this movie now, and I think, oh, this is what every single uh, 1960s supervillain was based on. This yes. is the prototype of all of those characters. Did Claude Rains go on to be a, a villain? Was that something that he did? Oh, yeah. Got it. Yeah, I mean, he Claude Rains is a fantastic actor. He, he's been in a lot of movies. He was also, he was not a villain in Casablanca, nor was he a villain in The Wolfman, uh, but he's the villain in Notorious, and mm. that's the, Notorious might be his best role. He plays a, a Nazi who Ingrid Bergman is a, an American spy who marries him. Mm. Uh you almost pity him. He's so miserable. <laughs> I like how you say that you really uh, like like the purity of the script because it it's not realistic at all. And it, it reads very no. much like a comic book, but it's very raw and it's very funny and extremely self-aware because you know that he's an insane 
egomaniac and just uh, complete narcissistic psychopathic murderer. And when he's talking to his uh, captive assistant, he's like, f- instead of trying to win him over, he's just immediately like, we'll show the world what we need to be like. We'll commit a few murders. And then when he murders somebody, <laughs> the first thing he says is, I murdered a little, a silly little policeman. And the guy's like, <gasps> like, like, you could have had the guy going for a little bit. You probably could have roped him in deeper into this thing. You didn't have to just right away start saying murder everyone and laughing. Well, he, he pulls a William Castle. He says, uh, if you don't help me, I'll just kill you. Yeah, yeah. And he almost does kill that guy, which is awesome. He does, he does kill, kill that him. guy. Oh, he, he does kill him. Not the most insane way possible. Uh, <laughs> it's really brutal. I was yeah, like, holy crap, there's a car crash that's on fire in this movie from oh, 1933. Oh, yeah, you're right. <laughs> did, did he kill him at 10 o'clock exactly like he said? Yeah. Yep. He did, right? He yep. kills him in the car, yeah. And the way he describes it, like... You, you don't see the gore itself, but just the way that he describes uh, how this car crash will affect the guy's body is, like, really fucked up. <laughs> it is evil. Yeah. Okay, this is kind of odd. It's, it's a little different direction, but <laughs> how funny are the female characters in this movie? They're all just screaming and wailing the entire time. Oh, my God. I mean, <laughs> the innkeeper was so hard to she's just a she's a cartoon character which was great but she was like such high comedy for such a terrifying film it was so funny (laughs) it was so funny and and, uh his girlfriend too is so over the top um yeah but i think it's okay because every character is over the top i feel like the movie is really disinterested in his relationship with his girlfriend um like she's just kind of there and he seems to forget that she exists unless she's right in front of him. Yeah, I feel like she's very classical 1930s ingenue. Like, I feel like her performance was exactly what the studio wanted. I feel like her character is exactly what the studio needs. Like, that's that's just what female characters were. Yeah, but she's very funny. So, I don't know if this is a thing or not, or if I'm just thinking of it because I know about James Whale, but... Is, does, does this movie have, like, a queer metaphor in it? Uh, uh, I didn't read that, but if you did, I'm, I am curious I, where. Yeah. I, I um, well, the fact that he's disinterested in his girlfriend is one thing. The fact that he uh, wants to just be left alone, but people keep prying and trying to find out more about him. Uh, then when he is going mad, he doesn't go to his girlfriend. He goes to his partner and uh, tries to manipulate his partner. Also, just the fact that he's naked when he's killing all of these men. Like, I can never stop thinking about the fact that he's literally just butt naked the entire time. I don't know. I, I Watching it, I started to... I, I got that idea in my head, and then it just... It kept lining up with everything that happened yeah and james well uh was a gay man he was very open about it actually oh. um oh yeah 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 see that's that's weird uh i don't i mean i don't read any of that into it but uh i mean i could see it's kind of like so loosely there you can kind of apply it and you know if you wanted to structure an argument about, around it it'd be hard to refute because like the pieces you said are pretty loosely in bounds and that kind of thing like the outsider thing and the i i'm invisible to myself i can't really show my true identity to everyone and etc but a lot of those elements are added onto the initial story from hg wells which is the murderer invisible 
where he did not have a fiance. That was added into the script later by, mm. uh, I don't have the scriptwriter's name in front of me right now. I do. R.C. Sheriff. R.C. Sheriff, yes. And uh, I got to tell you, he the valiant effort on the uh, script. So I think Wells was still alive at the time of this coming out. And he was upset about the way the island of Dr. Monroe was portrayed. It's just like a horror movie. So this was a little bit closer to the original source material. Mm. Now, in the original source material, the Invisible Man was a lot more sympathetic, but right. he was probably just as evil. But he was, it was more of like a political activist kind of like taking revenge on the world and trying to change it. And there was a part where he was trying to like spread bubonic plague and stuff. Oh, wow. Which, honestly, the character in the movie, you could see doing that. Yeah, definitely. I still think he's sympathetic. Yeah, but he's insane, too. I mean, it's like he doesn't see her because she's not in front of him because he's lost his mind. He's lost sense of who he is, you know? Right. It's kind of like in Hollow Man when he's like, you won't imagine what you could do when you don't see yourself in the mirror. So this is something that I want to talk about, actually. Uh, it's kind of a dead trope at this point, but it was a very common trope. You saw it in a lot of those comic books, especially like all the Spider-Man villains follow this. Uh, the accident that made him, or the scientific experiment, or whatever, made him mad. Right. Mm -hmm. And that is the only explanation we're given for his being evil, is that, oh, it just, it drove him mad also as a side effect. Right. Mm -hmm. What do you guys think of that trope? Do you guys like that trope? Do you, do you have any, have you just never really considered it? Mm. I like it for movies like this a lot, where it's just a quick explanation, and that's not the focus of the movie. I hadn't read the book, but I heard the book was more about his isolation and outcast mm. uh, otherness was what drove him to madness mm. rather than just, oh. I, I, I'm I putting these liquids on my skin now. I'm a crazy guy. Ha 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 ha. And I'm going to run around. Yeah. In fact, the, the screenwriter, the script went through several different screenwriters and, and several rewrites until they finally came to this one. And um, the one that they landed on, uh, when choosing whether or not to portray the doctor as mad, he said an insane man will get more people to sit up in the theater than a sane one. And so it seems like the tactic was used to be more of a horror tactic, mm -hmm. which is interesting because I think a lot of people on this film, too, didn't necessarily want to be involved with another horror film. They didn't want to be part of a B-horror studio film. To me... This trope has always felt like kind of just an easy way to explain the evil without having to actually get into the psychology of it. Mm -hmm. And it, you you see it a lot in comic books because the trope has died out, so they've had to find other explanations. So Norman Osborn in early comics just went insane when he turned into Green Goblin. In more recent years, it's, oh no, he's just an evil corporate maniac who is obsessed right. with power and is super abusive and was always terrible. Mm. Uh, Dr. Octopus in the original comics, we don't know anything about him before his accident, but it made him go mad. Mm. Now, in more recent years, no, he is a narcissist who wants his name to go down in history as the greatest scientist ever, and that's his motivation. Right. And I've always found these to be more interesting than simply saying that people are mad. And the fact that the trope has died makes me assume that most people agree would probably agree with that and prefer the villain with more depth and i i even your description of the invisible man in Wells original story that to me sounds more interesting than him simply going mad for sure and i'm wondering why why they thought that it would be more effective to have less motivation i i would say 
I think what the movie says is a little different. I think what they explore um, is that Griffin's old employer, along with his fiance, who's the daughter of the employer, they go after Griffin and want to cure him, want to like, they know that he's a mm. good man, but the rest of the town just wants to kill a man despite whoever he is. And I don't think it, that it really matters on like how this man went insane. I think what matters is the humanity of the person and like describe really talking about like how society views basically insane people at the time. I, I feel like that's that was something that maybe they're talking about. Not necessarily, you know, I think I think how you create a villain is reflective of what is seen as evil as that time. And I think the fact that Griffin is not considered a villain and that the cops and society are kind of seen as the villains says a mm. lot. Mm. I, I got to totally disagree with that reading because, I mean, he kills a train full of people. And I'm not like saying all he's a good want. guy. <laughs> I'm just saying it, it never feels to me like the cops are the villains. It always feels like he's going out of his way to provoke reactions out of the cops. Like he could have very easily just fucked off. He's mm -hmm. invisible. He could do whatever he wants. And he makes that known. But he has to teach society a lesson. He thinks that they're all like beneath him. And he has this like egomania, you know, this narcissistic disorder where he, he it's his job to teach them a lesson to show them who's boss. And he's constantly repeating that. Now, as far as like the characterization goes, I think you're right that it does present a much shallower character to not go into a more in-depth discussion of the psychology between his madness or his motivations but it's also i think it would take away from just kind of the straightforward nature of the piece as a whole i mean nothing in the movie is particularly realistic right even the way the cops react everyone's over the top it, it, it's a very spectacle oriented so i think in this particular piece it works better than and had they tried to go into the more in-depth character route it would have been clashing with the rest of the tone of the movie no but i do I, they are somewhat realistic in presenting his exact ability set. I mean, they make him ridiculously strong for no reason whatsoever, except that's scarier that way. Yes. Um, but but also, like, the way that they show his weaknesses. He says, oh, I can't go out in rain. In a smoky city, uh, the smog will cling to my skin and you'll be able to see me. Mm. I'm like, all of this stuff is realistic. It also makes him a lot weaker and then two seconds later he's like even the moon's frightened of me yeah I'm like, yeah dude you just listed all these weaknesses you're not that powerful well, well yeah david let me respond what i'm i'm not saying that the physics of the movie aren't realistic because those are done extremely well i mean the characterization of the characters the people's reactions to things yes. are very eccentric yes. and yeah. super funny which i love and i just i love these old movies where, like, everyone just bands together to go get everyone. Like, the cop's like, oh, he's upstairs. Let's run up there. And, like, nine guys run up there. They just all run down in unison. And then he goes, he's invisible. We'll go get him. And then he runs up and he goes, he got... and the guy's, the guy's, like, laughing and flapping his thing around. And he's like, he goes, I don't care if you're invisible. I'll just stand in front of the door. <laughs> it's like, you know, that, that's a great idea. Like, the practicality of how they deal with him being invisible is super fun. I like how they're just walking around the woods hitting shit with sticks. Yeah, that was so great. <laughs> a lot of this movie was hilarious. And the way that they get him in the end, I feel like wasn't even a plan. Like, they kept saying, I have a plan. I have a plan. And then we never find out what the plan is. And then they kind of just capture him by chance. Yeah, it's a little anticlimactic. 
Well, I, I thought it was cool because like they they had they tried to burn the the house down that he was in and, and cover it, and it wasn't working, and they only caught him because like his own hubris, right? If he had been smarter about it, he could have definitely gotten away. Does the story end the same way? Because it felt really tacked on to me. Uh, I don't know. I, sure. I never read. It, it, it felt like the movie wanted to end with him being victorious, with he kills his partner and gets away. Mm. It, it felt like that was supposed to be the ending, but they they, they literally weren't allowed to do that in the 30s. <laughs> they, there were literally mm. rules. They had to show the bad guy getting captured. Right. I, I didn't get the vibe that would happen, but maybe it's because I was watching it just from like the standpoint of like this is that era of film. Right. To, yeah. you know and that's that's just how the movies end the movies end with the mob killing the monster you know it, it has a frankenstein-esque ending and i mean the actual ending though can we talk about that that was so fucking cool the way that he rematerializes and they go oh, man, layer so by great. layer and i'm like oh the effects oh, of this yeah. film fucking awesome god the effects are incredible the effects really do hold up they do uh, it's, it's very impressive so um there, there's really there's three different uh, methods they used for some of the, the the most interesting effects, and the first, which everyone probably knows, is there was a lot of wire work, right? So there was you know a bicycle being dragged down the street, uh, a broom flying across the room, chairs moving, windows, all these things. That was just invisible wire work, right? That's done extremely well, but it's nothing like beyond um, what we'd think they'd be doing. But for instance, the way they did the footprints in the snow was really cool. They had built a platform with fake snow on top and then they had wooden feet print on levers that they would click and they would fall through as the camera tracked down oh, that made the footprints wow. that's awesome so, so it was like a falling mechanism right because they you know today they could just like cg it or they could just like do still images stop motion but it's not stop motion that's like real time happening that's why it looks so good as you're getting a camera movement the third one and the main one which looks the best and is the most complex is when he's half invisible right when he's like undoing his head or he takes off his nose yeah so they had to so they had to shoot that with four different angles and piece it all together on film like actually put one on top of the other so if you notice most of those shots are done on a still frame because otherwise it'd be near impossible so they have the shot of like him doing the motion then they have the shot without him there. Then they like got his back. And what they did is they did kind of like a rudimentary green screen tactic where they covered him in black velvet and then were able to just like cut that piece of the frame out on top of the other frame. So crazy. So I, I guess it's really super imposing. It is. Uh, was it all Claude Rains or was it, did they use doubles? Uh, I'm not positive. I, I think they used Claude Rains for most of it. I have much. Sure. Yeah, I mean, in in the scenes where he's all wrapped up, I just assume it's Claude Rains because the, there's so much body language involved. Yeah, that that's interesting. They almost didn't want to cast Claude Rains because he was a theater actor at the time and didn't have any experience. But I think mm. the fact that he was a theater actor is what made this movie because he was able to be more physical, because he was able to act more with his voice. And usually the thing that is hard to translate between theater acting and film acting is being more subtle for film. And that usually includes more facial expressions, which famously he has none in this film. <laughs> no, no, he, he, got, he got hired for his voice. And that it's voice. It's probably one of the rare times where they're like, God, you have a voice fit for an invisible man. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this was also like, really shortly after it was only five years after the invention of sound film mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so um 
I, I won't get too much into it because kind of a tangent, but the, there was a whole movement where a lot of film actors whose uh, careers have been built on the silent era died because they just they couldn't make the transition to talkies. They didn't have the voice for it. They didn't. It, it's a very different style of acting, and I feel like Claude Rains is someone who really emerged because of his ability to translate into a talking picture. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And he did get more subtle in later years. In later years, yes. And and he became obviously very famous. But it, it, that is an interesting thing to talk about, though, David, because I think a lot of what Rob was saying about the comedy, if, if I watch this as a silent film, I think the physicality and the comedy that came through is very reflective of a silent movie. Like, I, I feel like yeah. these characters would have been not as comedic if we saw them in a silent film because they just, like, have that energy. I think this movie is still pretty serious. Um, I, I mean, even just the... W- when he is ranting, like, again, that disconnect between his actual ability set and his delusions of grandeur. Like, we're talking about he's motivated by madness, but really a lot of it is that he can do these things so he thinks why shouldn't i and it is just this grasping for power it 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 almost feels like predictive of the the nazis that would come in uh a few years after this Hmm. interesting Hmm. point but i think that's the difference between like uh serious messaging and like a silly presentation yeah it's definitely a silly presentation but i I don't think it's that silly, and I think that a lot of that is us looking at with a modern lens where a lot of acting has evolved and grown, so we're used to a uh, more natural, subtle style. I think this movie is funnier now than it was when it came out. I do also think that it is meant to be somewhat comedic as well. I I agree with both those, because I think, uh, obviously, the camp um, is heightened now than it was at the time. Yes, but if uh, I'd read some things and a lot of these movies of the time, like Frankenstein and all that, were aware that they were funny. They weren't completely unaware. Absolutely. Right. And a lot of it was done for comedic effect. Like it was spectacle. It was supposed to be scary and funny. And and there was a lot of that in there. Um, That's why I think something like The Tingler (laughs) is so interesting because the scare factor is so much higher than a lot of these other films at the time that have that very campy evil scientist tropiness going on. Like, like right, Devin, the Tingler's a scary movie. The Tingler's a fucking fire name film. It has no right to be that scary. (laughs) I don't know why it's so scary. And I, I, well, and I think these movies tackle a lot about, um, a lot of different fears like i was saying earlier the tingler is more of an innate fear of ourselves and having something having ourselves being able to to kill ourselves and and something of the unknown but rather than the greater beyond it's the greater inner the invisible man just kind of feels if it feels more of that greater beyond something you can't control that there's something out there that you can't see physically and i mean they say this repeatedly throughout the film and what i've found was a frightening concept that I don't think they went far enough with was he could be literally in any room and the cops are like, I can't tell you what mm. the plan is because he could be standing next to you. And it became this fear of like not being able to, to really rise up against something, not being able to have any control against anything. Yeah. In both of them, it's an invisible monster that's just there with you and you don't even know. Right. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And I think that is the fear that both of them play into is just, 
the unknown. It's the it it, it is ex- both of these movies accept that there are certain things we're just not aware of, mm-hmm. and I I mean even in, even in the science part of the Invisible Man, <laughs> excuse me, <laughs> that was a great burp. Um, even with the science angle of the Invisible Man, it's just a few chemicals. It's like, that's all it is. It's just it was it was not that difficult to make myself invisible. Right. Yeah, yeah. Although it probably took him years to figure out. This is coming at, I don't know the exact timeline of it all, but this goes along with Einstein's theory of relativity. And they were starting to get some idea of the quantum mechanics that uh, were, were just being hinted at and people were arguing over whether or not it was real. Einstein said, God does not play dice with the universe. Niels Bohr replied, Einstein, stop telling God what to do. The atom bomb was on its way. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I, the uh, the story I believe predates Einstein's relativity theory. The movie is after, and it is playing into this fear of we're we're entering a new era of scientific advancement. Should we? Yeah, yeah, right, and it's right. they definitely both play with that. But where where they differentiate is I I think that the Invisible Man is talking about the ability for this type of power to corrupt. Whereas yes. the Tingler is a, about a fear of what we might find, that what mm. we might find might be very destructive rather than it, it affect how we use it. It's more it could just destroy us if we look too far. Like if we go too far into the abyss, we, we might get lost. Whereas the Invisible Man is like we might lose our humanity if right. we go too far. I think those are connected, though. They, they are connected, but, I mean, they're different. But they're it's the same fear going in two different directions. Totally, yeah. They're definitely connected. When did we first send someone to space? I forget when Sputnik was, but that was the first satellite sent. Got it. Because this was 59. Tingler was 59. So um, just piggybacking off of what Rob was saying, like if we were really scared about what we will find, it seems like around that time we were getting ready for space travel. Yeah, Sputnik was launched in 57. So yeah. there, had been a, there had been an unmanned space. Well, actually, was Sputnik manned? Yeah, the, the 50s were full of uh horror movies about aliens and science and whatnot like science was scary in that time yeah we were doing insane things then like crazy big things it's a lot of these sci-fi movies that we laugh at now for being cheesy and unrealistic like oh what if radioactivity will make you shrink to the size of a bug and we laugh at that now like that's fucking ridiculous but Back then, people really didn't know. They were like, we, we don't know. We don't know what aliens will look like. We don't know how they can arrive. Can they come any time? Will they look like us? Will they look like something else? People didn't know these things. And we were on this verge of learning uh, new ideas about the universe where we were scared. Yeah, and it's scary too because people also like never took it upon themselves to start thinking that way either. I feel like a lot of us throughout school are like, taught how to think like a scientist and how to infer and how to like research and and really dig into something but back then it was kind of like you don't talk about that stuff like you don't you don't take those trips down into fantasy science land like you're more reserved it's like vincent price says uh science can be frighteningly impersonal Mm. you know and it's this fear of what science might do to us and whether or not we should be meddling in everything. Um, what's, what I think is interesting, though, is that The Invisible Man 
seems a little bit more optimistic about science than the tingler because the tingler is like we we had to stop we got to not do this right this is something we can't do whereas the invisible man is like the fear of taking it like too far on your own about losing connection with other people and that maybe if you had someone else with you that there would be a way of tackling this problem it's about separating yourself from society through scientific advancement i disagree i think the invisible man is taking the same stance that literally like one of the last lines of the movie the invisible man's last line is he says i meddled in things that man must leave alone Mm -hmm. but that feels tacked on to me I feel like the rest of the science is so much more serious in The Invisible Man than it is in The Tingler. Like, The Tingler has this, like, this very, like, layman's view of science where they don't really say anything specific. They're saying, like, psychosemantic terms and whatnot, and just their science isn't really real. Whereas in The Invisible Man, you know, they, they get into, like, the nitty-gritty of what, like you were saying, what happens if snow's on him, how his digestible food is there. They ignore the fact, though, that you would all, he would also be blind, technically speaking. He would be blind if he was invisible? If light, if light goes through your eye, then you're not refracting it into your brain, so you would actually be blind if you were invisible. That's pretty cool. I didn't think about that. That's dope. <laughs> that makes sense. I guess that means that if you're invisible, you'd be like the predator then, and there'd be like some sort of light bending around you. Mm. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And they, they have made things invisible. I've heard that. It's creepy as hell. Yeah. Huh. I've never seen the experiments, though. Have you? I saw a photo, which I guess... It doesn't really say much, but it's exactly what you just said. It's it's light bending. It's light bending. Well, was it just an empty room? And they're just like, here's here's the invisible man. <laughs> She's like, oh my god, it's photorealistic. Shit, what were you just saying before though? I was saying that I think the invisible man is more optimistic because it seems like it takes the science a little bit more right. seriously. I agree more with Rob. They they're talking more about science and not to do it alone because um, when the assistant. When Kem goes to Flora and says, you know, don't worry about Griffin. He was meddling with stuff men should never meddle with. Like, he talks about it right then and there, that he's doing stuff against science that science should never do. And there's more, scientists have more rules and they have more guidelines and they have more moralities. And I think even before it kind of hints at Griffin being a little bit of a mad scientist himself because he wouldn't work with, he would keep to his room, he would work on these experiments he wouldn't talk to flora about it um he wanted to do something great and he wanted to do something different and that's even before he goes mad from the experiment itself so i think it really does question yeah it doesn't say science is bad all all right Mm. i guess the just to modernize this to put it into some context that we can better relate with we've pretty much ignored the messages of this movie we have absolutely pushed science beyond these points and I might argue that's a good thing. I don't necessarily agree with these movies. But the modern equivalent of it might be AI and the fears of uh, robot technology taking mm. over. The fears of even just literally global warming. Like climate change has happened because of us, because of our scientific advancements. So there is, I guess, a question of like, is there an extent... To which we should leave things unknown. Uh, well, well, I mean, no, because like global warming, for instance, um, it wasn't known while we were doing the destruction. Had we stopped knowing things, we wouldn't even know we had caused it. Good point. So it's important to fully to fully understand what we're doing. 
Because once you put a hard stop on it, you're closing off the conversation to improvement, right? The, the movies both have this sort of fear of science, but they take it in, again, to slightly different but connected directions in that the Tangler is more a fear, like you were saying, of learning something that we don't want to learn. Mm-hmm. And the Invisible Man is more of a fear of doing something that we should not be doing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so to go off your comment on the climate change analogy, Rob, um, in that respect, I would say that the Tangler is wrong. It is better to know these things than to not know them. Uh, but the Invisible Man might still be onto something that if we knew what we knew now about climate change, then maybe we shouldn't have done everything that we've done. Right. It's a very it's a very complicated look. But going even further, too, I mean, something the Invisible Man talks about a lot is the power of science versus God and man acting as God and... <laughs> there is this idea if we're going continuing with climate change that the the god or the the universe is trying to basically kill the human species or the human species are killing themselves and so we're trying to save ourselves and thus going against nature slash god um and we're constantly doing that with science i don't know it's it's still that Uroboros thing of like us saving ourselves is good, yes, but if God and nature is trying to kill us, then should we just let God and nature continue with its plan? Well, I, I think you'd you'd have to accept that there is a true separation between God, nature, and man, which I don't. Do you guys know about the Great Filter? Mm-mm. No. Cool. This is the most terrifying thing ever. Uh, so this is... Somewhat a solution to the Fermi paradox, which is it's a question of there are so many stars, so many planets, and so many. So the history of the universe is already so long that the universe should be populated with alien species, but we've never encountered an alien species. And it almost comes off at, when you actually crunch the numbers, it feels like a paradox. There must be something that we're not aware of. That is either preventing us from communicating with them or preventing other species from existing. And one of the solutions to this is that there is a great filter or several great filters, perhaps, where when a species reaches a certain level of advancement, it tends to destroy itself. Mm. Yeah, that's that's what happens in the video game series Mass Effect. But rather than destroying yourself, uh, a bunch of uh robotic ai come in and destroy you when you reach a certain scientific advancement yeah it's like that except much more uh not much more internal it's it could be climate change it could be nuclear war it could be ai uh it could be any number of these things working in unison or several or different ones destroying different species but there is a fear that we're reaching that breaking point yeah yeah I, i've heard that before um i mean the fernie paradox has a lot of different answers one of them being simula- simulation theory that you know it, it's just the computational power to uh create other civilized societies is just not there in the program so that's why we don't see them because we're in a program that's designed for us um that's a scary idea to me yeah but i yeah, I mean, this idea of being afraid of learning is just dogmatic and kind of disgusting. I mean, I, I kind of have to side side with one of my new favorite philosophers, John Stuart Mill, 
who argues that you always have to entertain other opinions to one reaffirm your own stance through clarity or two allow yourself open to a better suggestion 100 percent. learning is good and knowing more is better yes so now it's time for my favorite part of the show. And I'm really excited because everyone's been so positive throughout this podcast for our bone review section, where we rate each film on a one through four bone rating system with half bones in between. Starting us off this week is going to be David B. Jacobs. So uh, the Tingler has uh, the funniest name ever. <laughs> <laughs> um, I somewhat agree that it can be scary, but I really do think that the fear factor of it is cut in half every time they say the tingler <laughs> I, re I really think that it was a mistake yeah. to call this movie that like it's just it's so ridiculous and comedic and funny and it's so unaware of how stupid it sounds um it's not a perfect movie it, it definitely has issues with like the the exposition dumps and the kind of weird plotting of it um but it's fun vincent price is fucking awesome and that red blood in the bathtub is just chew fucking good. Uh, so I'm going to give it two and a half bones. The Invisible Man, I actually like a little bit better. I still have issues with it. As I expressed, I'm not a big fan of the this person simply went mad trope. Uh, I, I think that it's kind of campy and just an easy way out. And we haven't even talked about the what it says about mental illness, which... Um, but anyway... Uh, I do think it's a bit anticlimactic, but Claude Rains is the greatest thing ever. I fucking love Claude Rains, and his performance is so good, and this really does feel like a prototype of all the comic books, which I fucking love. <laughs> if you guys didn't know, I'm a huge fucking nerd. I grew up on Spider-Man comics. Like, there's an episode of the 1960s Spider-Man cartoon with uh, th their own take on the Invisible Man. They call him Dr. Noah Body. There's a part of that episode where Spider-Man figures out what's going on. It's like, ah, oh, Dr. Noah Body. Dr. Nobody. I get it. <laughs> that was my boyfriend's name in elementary school. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> my fake boyfriend. I'm... <laughs> he was invisible. Yes. No, yeah, he yeah. was real. He was just invisible. Yeah, the invisible boyfriend. <laughs> Um, anyway, I love The Invisible Man. It, it, it's one of the better universal horror movies. I'm giving it two and a half bones as well. Mm. Awesome. Uh, for me, The Tingler, I mean, a lot of the same thoughts. It It's such a fun movie. Vincent Price is fucking awesome. I love William Castle. Um, the, the whole drama and, like, the exterior storyline is fun and exciting. And, like, yeah, it gets to be too much at certain times. But there's just so much going on in this movie. Like we talked about, it it is a, it makes for a really interesting script. The horror was just good, and I just I just liked it. I just liked it so much. It was it was so much fun. So I'm gonna be giving that one three bones. Great film, The Invisible Man. Um, I did have issues with the script. I know you both liked it, but I think it did show a lot of struggling from adapting to a talking film versus reading cards. I, I liked the adaptation. I think they did a good job from what I remember from The Invisible Man um, to create something unique and yet honestly true to the storyline. Did a good job adapting it to film. Gloria Stewart, fucking awesome woman. I love her so much. Go look up more of what she did because she really changed Hollywood. 
an insane amount. And really? for, oh yeah. And she worked for like literally a hundred years. I went to like her hundred year or like 90 year uh, celebration of film. Um, and also for people that don't know, she played the old lady in uh, Titanic. I was just going to say that. Yeah. Oh, that's why the name sounded familiar. Yeah, she's she's fucking dope. Uh, Claude Rains, great performance. Totally agree. The effects. The effects were so fucking insane. Like, I'm still just like, <laughs> they are so cool. So, like, despite all of the, the issues that they had with from moving from silent to talky, I'm going to give it 2.5 bones. Wow. Okay. Uh, I, I really like both these movies a lot. Um, and I'm glad you guys like the movies too. So starting with The Tingler, I this movie holds a special place in my heart because it made my friend Chris Milano scream out loud when we were 15 <laughs> years old, which is just hilarious because it's just you don't expect that scene. If you go into this movie blind, you don't expect a scene that nutty because there are no zombies in the movie. And then when they – sorry, I don't even want to say ghouls, zombies, all kinds of crazy shit just starts happening. And you're like, what the F is going on? Um Script issues aside, it is very hokey and silly. The Tingler is funny looking, um, which to me I like because I watch this movie and I laugh from beginning to end. I, I, It just gives me so much joy to watch Vincent Price fight with a fake looking centipede <laughs> thing on his arm. And then to tell people that it's this destructive power they need to get rid of and all you have to do is yell at the thing to get it to like go into a fetal position. Um it's it's great uh three three bones you know i think it's just a great movie it's it has no right being nearly this scary uh moving on to the invisible man uh classics are classics for a reason and whenever the script started getting a little bit too much for me and i'm like all right it's a little silly claude rain starts his laugh this maniacal like staccato of insanity and i i just start cracking up and um i think it, it it's got smart messaging um, it's got very fun performance and the staging of the scenes I actually think are quite good I, I like the characters running mm -hmm. around and, and all those all that and it's very very consistent within the mood um, towards not quite the last ending of it is very good but there's a part right before then maybe in like the beginning of the third act that kind of slows down a little bit so I think the runtown could probably be cut by five or ten minutes and it would be a stronger film the characterization bit doesn't bother me as much because the performance is so over the top. So I think to add that, you would have to add lo a longer runtime, which I think would be to the detriment of the film. So I'm also going to give it three bones. I really like the movie, and I'll probably watch it again. I I'm tempted to give it three and a half. F uh, fuck it, three and a half. Hey! It's a great movie. It's a, cl it's a classic for a reason. I, I love this. Three and a half bones. There <laughs> it is. James Wells is a great director, by the way. It's, it's fantastic. It's a very well-directed movie. Bride of Frankenstein. Enough said. <laughs> That's it for us this week, guys. Thank you so much for tuning in. Go home and watch these movies if you haven't already seen them. And fuck it, watch every James Wales movie. Watch every William Castle movie. And just binge Vincent Price for the next year. Well, I'm Rob Basercha, and this is Cadaver Dog signing out. All right, you fools. You've brought it on yourselves. You want to know who I am? I'll show you!
May on a cold and crusty morning. <laughs> That's such a silly movie. 